Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of the Search with Candor podcast. This is episode 102 and I am your host, Jack Chambers Ward. But don't worry, we're not going anywhere. Season 3 kicks off straight away next week. There is no break, no stops. You're not going to miss out on anything, I promise. We'll be back next week with episode 1 of Season 3 and not only will we be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this in audio form, we will also be available in video form on our YouTube channel. So go and check out the Candor YouTube channel right now. There'll be a link for that in the show notes. So if you go to the show description just below you here, there'll be a link for our YouTube and you can subscribe now so you can see the podcast rather than just hearing the podcast. It'll be me and my guests on screen talking. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to creating lots of new video content going forward in 2024. Like I said, this is the last episode, and I've got a very special guest this week, the fantastic Petra Kishershig. Petra is a really, really interesting person who talks about both SEO, marketing, all that kind of stuff, but also neuroscience. And I found that such an interesting combination of things to talk about on this episode, right? The the fact that so much of psychology and stuff crosses over with marketing I find really interesting and bringing the scientific side of things, the neuroscience side of things is something I'm always keen on. <laughs> you know, I'm, if you've ever heard the show before, I'm a big science fan. I have a degree in physics for a reason. I am a huge science nerd to get into nerd out with Petra on some of their really interesting, passionate topics was very, very cool. Petra is a fantastic speaker. You may have seen them speak at things like Brian SEO and things like that. Yeah, I think it's a really, really fantastic episode, a really great interview, and I found it really amazing to speak to Petra and talk about everything we're going to talk about in the next sort of hour or so. Before I get to that, of course, this episode is also sponsored by Systrix, and you can go to systrix.com slash SWC if you want to get some free tools and a free trial of their service. You can go to systrix.com slash newsletter. There you can subscribe to Trendwatch, which is the monthly trends newsletter, which I have mentioned many, many times on this show over the last couple of years. And also you can get the monthly update one, which is also fantastic, now made by the one and only Jono Alderson. He has now joined the Systrix team and is doing their regular updates on their newsletter there. So you get a couple of different options for newsletters from Systrix. I highly recommend you check out Sector Watch as well. That's always one of my favorites. Where you get Charlie Williams, who's another member of the Systrix data journalism team, diving into a particular industry or sector about what kind of sites are working, what kind of content that they're creating is working, and all that kind of stuff. So, hugely recommend you go and check that out. Go to systrix.com slash blog for all the kind of posts and stuff. Like I said, go to slash newsletter for all the newsletter stuff, and slash SWC, systrix.com slash SWC, if you want free tools and to get a free trial of their service as well. I gave a big rundown of all the updates they've done to their services and featured improvements and all that kind of stuff last week. So please go back and listen or watch last week's episode if you want to check out me giving a rundown of basically everything they've improved throughout 2023. But we're now in 2024. So without any further ado, here is my conversation and interview with Petra Kishershek.
as well as being a world-renowned independent solutions consultant. You may know my guest from speaking at events such as Brighton SEO, MozCon, and RIP, Search Love. Also appearances on podcasts such as Crawling Mondays, Opinionated SEO Opinions, Democratizing SEO, and Suds and Search. Where haven't you seen my guest? Let's be honest. He is a superstar. Welcome to the show, Petra Kishherzeg. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jack. It's so great to be here. And um, we were just talking about it, how I don't like to introduce myself. And I mean, this is why. Like, <laughs> could it be any better than this? Why would I introduce myself when you can... <laughs> this is great. Can you introduce me on all, all of my upcoming podcasts and conferences? Yeah. Uh, shall I send you the little MP3 clip on your phone? So like, yeah, when you, when you meet just... people at conferences, you can just play that to them and just be like, see, see, I'm a big deal. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I just <laughs> take that. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned uh, Brighton SEO, mentioned MozCon, lots of different speaking appearances. We're kind of building on your topic that you touched on in your most recent Brighton SEO talk, right? We're going to talk about emotional intelligence. And I know this ties into not only your marketing and SEO career, but also your neuroscience studies as well. So we're going to come, a, come at it from a few different angles. I think I'm going to learn a lot because this is definitely not my subject of expertise. We were just talking beforehand. I'm the physics guy, you're the neuroscience person, we're going we're gonna to come at it from a few different perspectives. And essentially, we're going to try and tie emotional intelligence and how important that is in SEO and how it can affect the industry and the listeners' careers as well, right? Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this topic. It's definitely became very close to my heart and something that I think doesn't necessarily get the attention that it should. Yeah, I really like the title of your Brighton SEO talk, like the future of SEO is emotional intelligence, because I think we so often talk about like search intent and user intent and all that kind of stuff. And I think you, a lot of people often hear the phrase emotional intelligence kind of thrown about, especially in a very like internal HR kind of way, like, oh yeah, you've got to be aware and regulate and get some motivation and all this kind of stuff, you know, all the little buzzwords that come around with it. But should we start off with like what is emotional intelligence and kind of start with a definition and we can maybe get a different interpretation and blow some people's minds even with the first topic? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I hope so, because I think this is this is such an important question, like what is emotional intelligence? And I don't think most of us or I don't think as a general knowledge, we we actually have a good definition of it as of yet. Um, if I... If I look online, if I just think of like what people usually say when we say emotional intelligence, then it's, it usually comes back to things like, yes, as you mentioned, self-awareness, motivation, and people say like the capacity to be aware of our emotions and how we process and to control them and to, to perceive like other people's emotions, which by the way, I kid like it's good enough if you can define your own emotions, let alone <laughs> trying to understand someone else's, but we can go into that later on. So that's just. I don't think that should be part of the definition for sure. Um, but people always think about emotional intelligence as sort of the knowledge and awareness of your own emotions, but that's not true. Like in like um, the way how I, I could probably best explain this is that think about artificial intelligence, right? Like AI, everyone in our industry knows AI. Like artificial intelligence doesn't mean the intelligence of understanding artificial things like artificial in that phrase refers to like how that intelligence processes things like what it uses right so it's the same with emotional intelligence the word emotion in emotional intelligence refers to 
how your intelligence works through emotions. So it's so it's a process. It's an interpretation part of it rather than, oh, now I need to be able to express my emotions and control my emotions. Like, I mean, you can't become this person who can always control their emotions and always express them. Like, it's not possible so that it wouldn't even be like a right type of measure of like, oh, if this person can really control their emotions, then they are highly intelligent. That just that just doesn't add up. And that's why I think that the definition is is problematic. Um, whereas if we if we look at emotional intelligence as this sort of um, through the lens of emotions, let's say, so use that as the interpretation method in everything we do in life, then I think it becomes much more powerful, which is why um, in the Brighton SEO presentation as well, and in the article I've written about it, I mentioned that Emotional intelligence should really be the way how we make sense of the relationship we have with ourselves and with our environment. And to me, at least, it really sums it up because it really refers to it as this method of interpretation. Yeah, I, like I said, I think so many people are like a little tangentially aware of emotional intelligence. But I love the way you're thinking about it in terms of interpretation. And I think you're totally right. There is that stereotype of like, Oh, if you're in control of your emotions, then you must be a very intelligent person. Like you have to be very stoic and very controlled and all this kind of stuff and be like a like a Vulcan in Star Trek or something like that, right? Like have this super controlled, like but not to go into like emotional health discussions and stuff like that, but like that can lead to a buildup of everything <laughs> and eventually will explode, right? And I think that's there's a it's definitely a stereotype where especially when it comes to the more analytical side of things, you know, we deal with a lot of data in SEO, we're dealing with a lot of numbers and stuff, but something we keep coming back to, I think pretty much everyone I talk to, whether it's on the podcast, in conferences, just in offices or whatever, it comes down to people at the end of the day, right? It's it, as much as we are doing the whole like, you know, oh, it's got to be crawlable and it's got to be indexable and all this kind of stuff. We have to think about the people on the other end of everything and also us who are creating everything and in the words of that article, ruining the internet. <laughs> Indeed. But, yeah, I think, like I said, when it comes to like user intent and search intent and stuff like that, we don't really think about it much further than the end goal, right? Oh, it's a it's a intent to transact. It's an intent to gain more knowledge or information or whatever. So I guess how can we think about emotional intelligence and how that relates to SEO and how that can help us kind of understand users and understand people who are searching and things like that sure so before just before i go into that as well because i think you touched on a few very very important things of how people think about this and sort of separate like this technical thing from the human side of things but then you also mentioned obviously we, we are all humans so again it's just understanding that you like you do have feelings you do have emotions even if you don't give it a name right you experience these things and they are part of everything you do I think part of the reason why people are not willing to accept that a lot of times, um, and that's that's a lot of time what the science says as well, is because there is a lot of outdated science out there, which really in the last sort of maybe 10, 20 years has been sort of um, researched and, and disproved and all of that. But what there's been this view of, of that our brain has like different compartments, like the the emotional brain, the rational brain, and the, you know, the reptilian brain or whatever, like, which is not true. It, it, that's never been supported by neuroscience. It's just that 
it's kind of an easy to understand concept for people. And, and this is again, how our brain works. Our brain loves easy explanations because it doesn't take us up as much effort. So if we can take up, take something and, and it sort of applies to our life and it works for us, we, we accept it. Like it just, it, it, it's, um, it's sort of metabolically not as expensive to, <laughs> to be like, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense. I'm going to use this now, but it doesn't mean that it's true. And I think that's important to know because then um, what the neuroscience does say is that obviously the different areas within your brain um, are obviously all connected. So when you experience an emotion that, you know, emotions, well, first of all, um, I shouldn't even say that, that you experience an emotion because you essentially more experience things. You have sensations, you have feelings, and then you construct emotions. Emotions are something that people made up like, like we made up money, right? Like it still has value, it's still real. And and this this metaphor is not from me, it's from from a brilliant neuroscientist, Lisa Pablo-Barrett. She has a book and she mentions this and I completely stole it because I think it's brilliant. The whole comparison with with money, like it is still a real thing, right? It, it does have value, but it, it has value because we as humans created it. And it's the same thing with emotions. So the underlying feelings, the bodily sensations, the, the thing that you're your heart rate um, speeds up or or your breathing changes or anything like that, that's all very real. But the emotion itself that you give it a name, that's that's something that you just make up in, our, in your mind. And the reason why this is important, because when you realize that, you realize that you cannot separate that from anything else in your life. And, when, and, I, and I literally mean anything. So take technical SEO, for example. Um, People might say like, okay, I, you know, I work in technical SEO, I work on code, I have to write user stories to to developers. Those developers definitely don't want to talk about their emotions or have long conversations. Like, why would I care about this? Like, I just need to make sure that all the sort of user stories I write are, you know, solid and they are prioritized and all of that. Well, if you think about it that way, you're you're still like the emotions that you have in terms of wanting to, for example, solve a problem, a technical problem, will still be part of it. You still can't separate that out. So let's say you encounter a challenge um, with, with JavaScript SEO and, and you want to solve it. Like finding that solution, like you wouldn't have the motivation and you wouldn't have the interest to even look into that problem. And in order to understand that is really important and that's part of self-awareness. And and that will help you in the future as well solve other technical problems because if you know what sort of motivates you and, and how your brain works, how you think about getting to a solution, then you can really optimize that process and then you can uncover problems faster to then solve them faster and then you can explain them better because then you can start to have conversations about, well, this is how I solve a problem. How does that developer solve a problem or why they don't see that it's a problem? Like I see that it's a problem. I have a response clearly in my brain that, you know, does relate to emotions of why I even care about this. They don't care about it. They keep putting it on the backlog. They keep dropping it. And and there are all sorts of, you know, human responses there that we need to understand. And emotional intelligence is the core to those conversations. And, you know, they don't have to be these hour-long conversations. They just really, it, it's more within ourselves. It's it still obviously relates to that relationship we have with the developers as well. But I think it really starts with you understanding how your brain works. So at least you can explain that and you have less confusion about that. 
Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of different bits there. And I think it's really interesting that we need to, like you said, relate to other people in different ways and understand other people's priorities. This comes up a lot. And I know um, you're on Crawling Mondays with Tom Critchlow and Aleda talking about like getting buy-in from other people, right? And understanding where other people's priorities come from and where the developer's highest priority may not be the same priority for you and your team. And it may not even be the same as the managers or the CEOs or whoever, like, right, you need to understand where everyone else is coming from. But should we kind of start off with the self-awareness side of things? Because you kind of touched on it just then. I think that's a a really important part. It's something I touched on with um, Tasman Solomon a few weeks ago when we were talking about understanding. Tasman's the best. She's awesome. And and we were talking about how that motivation can come from self-awareness and how those two things kind of relate to each other. And understanding yourself and and this is a journey i've been on since i was diagnosed with adhd earlier this year like coming with the what motivates me you know those goals the little dopamine things all that kind of stuff so many people talk about when it comes to getting work done what do you find satisfying and all that kind of stuff so i guess should we always be aware of like what motivates us and our own self-awareness but also how to empathize with other people how do we find that balance between the two and and do you have some sort of ideas about how to get better at being self-aware both professionally and personally i guess yeah it's it's a really it's a really good question i love how you phrase it as well like should i always be self-aware like i almost and this is again just my sort of interpretation of how you phrase that question but it's just like it sounds so exhausting like so right? now I, yeah, all, absolutely. I always need to be aware of like this is what i'm feeling and like oh my god it's just like can like people just stop talking about this and just leave me alone like like <laughs> i i totally get it because because i think there is an aspect to this whole like self-awareness and mental health and everything where it's really being pushed at like you really need to you really need to do even more work and like focus on this and this is why um this is why i i love starting with the definition of emotional intelligence because i think people really see it as as this trade-off thing like so now i have to do this as well like i'm doing all these other things but now i also like have to constantly think about like how I'm feeling, what motivates me, like, like, it just makes me want to, like, curl up in bed and, like, you know, like, leave the whole thing, like, I get it, but it's actually not a trade-off, because if you're more aware, okay, so first of all, if you're more aware of, obviously, like, what motivates you and it, it, it comes easy to you, then everything else in your life becomes easier, then, then you learn things faster, then you can adapt to, to change change better so it will you know you can reduce stress so there are all of these brilliant health benefits that we always hear about so actually it really underlies lines um a really solid foundation to then do better but um people would say okay but i you know still need to invest the time first well yes because it's if if you're completely new to this then yes because it's a new skill and anytime you learn something new that feels difficult right but this this is the same as with any type of learning let's say you start a new university tomorrow or you start taking a course on ai or something it's going to be tiring or you just encounter a new task at work it's going to be tiring at first but it's the same as with everything it takes practice and with practice it's it becomes sort of something that you do really easily another um misconception that i think relates to this and it's still sort of um, I see people bring it up every now and then is um, can people multitask, for example. And 
And a lot of times people say like, no, people cannot multitask. Like you're just switching between tasks and that's wrong as well. Like <laughs> the neuro, it, like it's, it is possible to multitask. It's absolutely possible to multitask um, neuroscientifically speaking. When they look at the brain, that is, that is something you can do because actually like, I mean, otherwise none of us could walk on the street while we have a phone conversation or while we're typing or something, <laughs> right? Like that is multitasking because the walking part doesn't require that attention that, you know, so you can actually do those two things at once. And it's the same with other things as well. If you do them enough, if then it becomes sort of this, this thing that you almost just do on autopilot and it doesn't require that effort anymore. And that's why it's super important because then things are not a trade-off. If you're, if your self-awareness, if, if, um, you're reflecting on things, it's just sort of this natural thing that you do because it became part of your habits, part of your practices, then it's effortless and it's helping you on the way because you're probably constantly doing it without you even realizing it, like like breathing, right? Like we do that and <laughs> I mean, thank God, because otherwise, um, obviously like you wouldn't get very far. So it's the same thing. It can become that practice. And hopefully that just, you know, that just tells people that when they feel like, oh, this sounds exhausting, like, at first, if you've never, you know, if you've never had a conversation with anyone about your feelings and if you never considered them before, then it is going to be difficult at first, for sure. But it does get easier. Yeah, you, you touched on a lot of things there. I think we want to t touch on something. Funnily enough, again, uh, I know Tasmin talks a lot about with her clients and stuff is is that kind of self-reflection stuff. And it's something I really, really struggle with. And I have have a terrible kind of metacognition of my own thoughts and my own ideas and stuff like that I, i've almost kind of feel very outside of it a lot of the time and have to go out of my way to think about reflecting and oh how did that day go how did that project go how is this client meeting all this kind of stuff do you think there is a a real kind of benefit to that to understand you know your long-term goals your strengths your weaknesses from a neuroscientific perspective and also i guess from a professional and personal perspective should we be self-reflecting regularly and and getting to then that helps build the the self-awareness right yeah i think self-reflection absolutely i mean that's that's part of that self-awareness if, you, if you're not like if you're not reflecting then you can't really um understand it but how you're reflecting that you know there are there are hundreds of ways that how you can do that and there is not like one way that like this is how you need to do it and that's the best way because because we're all different we our brains are wired differently and therefore different things will work for us so also like i just i don't think there's anyone out there who doesn't do any sort of self-reflection like i i don't think that's possible like we <laughs> we think like everyone has that moment when like you know they are trying to fall asleep and suddenly just all these thoughts come to their head and it's just like probably very inconvenient because it's like oh god like now I'm worrying about this but that's that's self-reflection right like you're you're reflecting on worries that you sort of pushed aside and now that your brain is sort of starting to relax it's like okay there's space here now the all these worries can come to the surface and and basically you're in your sleep which gets into a, a vicious cycle of then <laughs> you know, you're not, you're just worrying about more things. So it's, it's already something you do just, you know, if, if your current sort of the, the way how you're dealing with it is not really optimal and it doesn't really benefit you, then you're probably not doing it the way that it would help you. 
which is why it's really useful to look up things. And Tasman talks about talks about this a lot. But, you know, there are, there are a bunch of things that um, that experts recommend, such as journaling or going to therapy, getting a coach. Um, doing, I mean, one thing I I suggested at Brighton SEO because I think it's just super easy and very minimal effort is do personality tests, and and it, and it can be done so quickly. And like I I said it there, obviously there are things like the Myers Briggs test or uh, 16 personalities, I think is a similar one that's free and it's online. And, 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 you know, they might take a little bit more of time, but honestly, even if you just go online and do like a, which Star Wars character I am test or <laughs> whatever, that, that is still something like that, you know, there's, because the part is like, the important part is not really like what kind of results are you going to get? The important part is that first of all, you spend some time like reading questions that are about yourself. So you're already naturally doing some self-reflection because you have to answer those questions. And then you get a result and then you read it and then you have certain thoughts and feelings about it. And that is the part that you should really pay attention to. Like, oh, I don't like this character. Like, why am I, why am I Jardar or whatever? Like, <laughs> you're already getting, and you're like, I think, I think some of the questions I would ask then if you get something like, for example, you don't like is that, well, if, if your friend would have got that, would you be the same judgmental as you are when mm. you're reading this now? And and you're saying like, no, I'm not like that. I don't like that. Like, are you just judgmental because it doesn't fit with the, the view that you have about yourself? Or like, if it would be your friend, you would be like, no, that's really good. Like, that's really true. Like, I agree. Like, because that's also really interesting, like how we think about ourselves and how we talk to ourselves. And what sort of expectations do we set to ourselves? So a lot of these things can come as a result of it. But the first step is really that you need to do something that will um, sort of deliberately you're doing it because you want to self-reflect rather than just it's sort of happening to you and you're not really in control of it. Yeah, I think taking that active approach to self-reflection, like you said, I, I, I said earlier, like, oh, I don't really self-reflect, but you're totally right. I do all the time, whether it's, you know, while I'm doing the washing or, or lying in bed, that moment before you fall asleep, like you said, you worry about all the things that are going to happen tomorrow, have, have happened today or whatever it is. You, We have that kind of inherently built in us to think about that kind of thing. And I think taking that extra step to actively do it and, and learn a bit more about yourself. We did this at Canda last year. We did the insights discovery thing where you get like your color, the, the four colors, the yellow, green, blue, red thing. And I learned like, oh, I'm very very blue and and mark for example is very very red and we had almost exactly opposite like i was the most blue and he was the least blue and I, he was the most red i was the least red i'm like <laughs> okay yeah that's why we kind of like bounce off each other at some points but also we kind of work well together and then we did it as a whole company so there was like 20 of us all in the conference room like all learning about each other and understanding like oh this is where you're good this is why you're good at this job and why you know the project managers are better project managers than they are SEOs and the SEOs are better than they are account managing and all this kind of stuff. I found it really interesting to not only learn about myself, but learn about my colleagues and my coworkers as well. Like how important do you think that can be to under understand your own strengths and weaknesses, like professionally, but also understand, I guess, where you can fit in a team or like yourself when you're working freelance, how you can fit in with a client team as well. Yeah. It it's such a good example. I've done that. I've done that test myself as well at one of my companies. Um, Ooh, what what colors are you, Petra? Come on, let me know. I can't remember. I definitely <laughs> had I definitely had 
read somewhere first or second. Honestly, I can't remember because the thing with me, I don't, I don't like to be put into boxes. So, <laughs> so I reject all of it and I just go like, no, because today I'm like this and tomorrow I'm like that. And and they actually, I think, say that on the training as well. They that do, like yeah. Some days certain things might feel stronger and you can change those because you get those like bricks and then you can change them around so you yeah. can put it out there and you can send a message to people like this is how I'm feeling today sort of thing, which, which I, I really like that part. Um, but then... I think what's really important here is the conversation you have around it rather than the test is great, of course, but it's more important what kind of conversations does it start between coworkers? Because um, it's almost like you already have to be a little bit self-aware in order for it to work well within a team. Because I've seen examples where people have been a little bit nasty with it mm. and say comments because obviously it's really easy when you categorize things, then it's really easy to create stereotypes, right? Yeah, our, like our, tr- our red- trainer specifically was like, okay, after this training, nobody say, oi, you, reds, go and sit over there. Like, I don't want to deal with the blues today. Or, oh God, you're being so green at the moment. Like, you can really, and it so quickly turns into like, almost like derogatory terms, right? It turns into like, oh, Indeed, I'm hanging, yeah. I'm hanging out with my fellow blues. And you create these little like, subculture little niches and stuff like that so yeah you're, you're totally right <laughs> there is there is that danger and again that's just us trying to jump to categories and stereotypes because again metabolically less expensive it's like the easy route right okay this makes sense now they are also red and red okay i'm gonna hang out with them like that's obviously the the worst that can happen after that but um thankfully that's obviously not the majority and and people wouldn't use it and as you said the trainers often instruct people as well and i think that's why you already need a little bit of self-awareness to understand that these these are really for for guidance right and um like i feel like i've, I've spent a, a lot of time working with different people and i love um sort of asking a lot of questions i love being really open about myself as well in terms of how i work well and i spend a lot of self-reflection and and you know a lot of time understanding that so I can communicate that to, for example, clients. And then, and then I ask them questions as well. And sort of that really helps that connection without sort of having to share like Myers-Briggs acronyms or whatever, because um, that can be misleading as well. But within a company, of course, where you're spending a lot of time with people, I think it's really good for them for that self-reflection. But then again, the conversations you can have after that is also, is definitely also very beneficial. But um, it, it's like, I always say that, um, companies still have to be careful with those stereotypes because, um, our trainer at the time I remember said something about like red, like they're usually the leaders, right? Like, can they say, and they say something and, and I, I think there are just aspects of some of these personality tests that we shouldn't do because <laughs> like, just don't say that, just don't say that reds are the leaders or, or, you know, like, is it, is it even a good thing? Like maybe that's actually the problem that we have a lot of red leaders <laughs> like it's just some of those phrases that sometimes we say with these tests that like again that's the unimportant part of it so they can they can you know there is always room for improvement there as well but um in general obviously the theory of it and that self-reflection part of it is very very important and i think again because you can change those bricks around there's a really good element there of like just understanding that 
you're in different states in different days and 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 you go into work and um it's the same with um for example uh, like scientific studies show that you know if you're hungry or tired or whatever you make poorer decisions like that's just the case like don't make decisions just before you have your lunch like <laughs> if you're hungry go for lunch and make decisions after like that's why people shouldn't schedule meetings where you, you know, where you can't have lunch because that's just not going to yeah. go well. I... I remember reading a study where if you want to have a client call where you want them to like buy in something or if you're in-house and, you know, you have to have a big meeting with the CEO or, you know, senior management, whoever it is, do it after lunch because they'll be happier. Their brain will be more switched on and they'll be, I think there was a literal study of like the percentage of, I, again, I am not pulling a number out and, and quoting it, but there was a significant difference between pre-lunch and post-lunch meetings with like getting buy-in and acceptance and having actual like motivating conversations with senior members of staff and stuff like that. 100%. I mean, again, it's, you know, there is there is more nuance to that even because, um, again, you know, if you have a lot of lunch and then you have that sort of <laughs> afternoon dip where you're super <laughs> tired and you're just like, or maybe you feel really bad now because you're tired and you, you know, zoned out of the whole presentation. So as a client, you're just like going to say yes because it's like, oh, my God, I, didn't, I wasn't even able to listen because I was so tired during the whole presentation. But then again, like, if let, let's say they say yes, was that even like, a yes that they meant was it with a yes with commitment the other other topic i i love to talk about this fake buying that you get so so you can play around with this like oh like let's take the client out for lunch and then they're more likely to to say yes to our proposal or whatever but actually what you really need to look for there is them giving you commitment so um but it is true like we make poorer decisions if you know our just basic bodily needs aren't met like if we are tired and hungry and all of that and and that's and that's an important part of it to to be aware because um like you can't necessarily you can't necessarily make sure that every single meeting that you're gonna turn up to you're gonna be on top four right like sometimes you will be stressed sometimes you will be tired and you still have to go there and you still have to make a decision but another thing is that just by being aware that you know that that instinct that's making you irritated and just makes you want to finish the meeting is not there because you don't like someone else's idea. It's there because of you. It's there because you didn't have good sleep last night. It's it's So the knowledge of that will be very powerful in order for you to be able to separate those two things and still evaluate someone else's proposal, for example, and, and look at it in a way that you can still assess it and you're not sort of attributing your 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 hunger or your uh, irritation toward the fact that you know they said something you know that it's coming from within you basically and then it has nothing to do with the proposal for example so it's um yeah it's i think i think these these are sort of some i guess practical examples where these things could be very beneficial and like the same with interviews or or accepting a job for example like you might be able to um you know do like let's say it's uh you're you're starting out and, and i think i've read up um someone was writing a post about this like how difficult it must be at the moment to start out as an seo like mm. there is um there is a lot there are a lot of jobs out there but they kind of seem to all 
want this like at least a few years experience so if you're totally new it must be like nerve-wracking and there is so much out there already right and to be able to know that you know you have that confidence like you feel the nerves and you can't always get over the nerves or get over the imposter syndrome but to be able to separate the two things could mean that even though you're really nervous you can separate it out and you can still deliver the the interview the your knowledge your expertise and and hopefully get that job so these things can really make the difference yeah i think that makes a big difference like you said that you see those job listings where it's like junior seo with at least five years of experience i know um i saw uh, nick Leroy from seo jobs calling it out the other day and and doing like fake job postings like these seem fake but actually here's a real one that is exactly this kind of thing and god it drives me nuts yeah absolutely as, as somebody who you know kind of lucked into this job through linkedin and didn't, <laughs> didn't even apply for it directly i i was very lucky in that process thankfully because I remember having to apply for, for previous jobs and like my first agency job being like, I mean, I kind of know SEO. I, I built a website in the company that I worked in, but I've not officially done any SEO like in my job title or anything. I was just like marketing manager. So I don't know. I'm just going to hope for the best. And and I, again, coming back around to like self-reflection and stuff, had to understand like what do I know? What don't I know? Like what part of this role and for example, in my previous agency, it was a, it was a, you're doing everything. Like you're doing a bit of PPC, you're doing a bit of paid social, you're doing a bit of organic social, basically everything. I'm like, um, I don't really want to do that, but okay, I'll take the job. Like, <laughs> I guess I'll learn. Turns out I hate paid ads. I hate paid social. I was never, I was never good at it. And that's why I've ended up in SEO. <laughs> um, it was the thing you hated the least, basically. Exa exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love <laughs> that's, that. That's how you settle into a good job, right? <laughs> it's, the, it's the thing. You, it, they, people often say like, oh, if you love, if you love your work, you never work a day in your life. Is, oh, or, is, God. or is it just do the thing you hate the least for a job? There you go. <laughs> that works too. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the new slogan right there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, like understanding other people's emotional intelligence. Well, like how important is that when it comes to things like not only having empathy for coworkers, but I think that also comes around and kind of looping back around to how I started the conversation with search intent and clients and networking events and colleagues and peers and all this kind of stuff. Right. I think empathy can be such a big thing that a lot of us, again, I think use it as a buzzword. We think about it, but we don't really dive into it in any depth and, and really think about it and how it applies in so many different ways, right? Yeah, it's uh, this is, again, one of the topics I I love discussing. I think it's so important. And I, I, I always say, like, the first thing is when people are like, oh, you know, like, how do I understand other people's emotions or, like, their, their point of view or something? And, like, I think the first approach should be is that you cannot like you cannot understand other people you can the best thing you can do is that you can understand what your interpretation is or the things they tell you and and the reason why i'm saying this is because if you have that mindset then you will you will never stop asking questions and basically that's that would be my sort of tip probably or like that the actual practical thing you do that never take if for granted that you understood something that you really understood that that as in like you understood that other person's point of view or um 
and, and that can be like with, with obviously with your stakeholders, for example, when they're talking about something like never say that um, you you fully understand, even if they even if they like explain like this is why we can't do this project. Let's say they say no to your proposal, like this is why we can't do the strategy, and you're like, okay, I understand it now. I understand their point of view. Fine. Like there is always more behind that, and you can always ask more questions. So I think if you have this approach where um, you realize that your understanding is basically just your interpretation, like you can you can never put yourself in other people's shoes like fully you can have an idea but it's very different and it's the same with um it's the same when we talk about things like search intent I mean it, it is we have so little data about that honestly like it's it's uh, everything that that we do with search intent and obviously I'm not I'm not saying that this is a this is a bad thing. Like you can do incredible things with search intent, and it's very important that we you know use that data more and more to to stay relevant. And and I'm not saying that they don't work, but I just think it's important to still stay critical of it because the data will constantly change as as it does. You know how how much data you can get, where you can get it from, um, who's actually giving consent to collect their data and, and and all of those things and the attribution models change all the time. So you have to be on top of that anyway, in terms of what does that data actually mean? How do I interpret it? Um, but the other thing is that behaviors change all the time. And um, like, for example, when, when you look at uh, your, your data in analytics or well, no one goes into Google Analytics since GA4, so whatever <laughs> analytics <laughs> analytics you use now, and you go in there and you see those numbers, right? Like that, like the numbers might be a sort of a rational thing, but in order to make sense of that, you will have to add your own interpretation or someone else will add their interpretation and that's what you're gonna get. So there will always be that sort of nuance of what is the story behind that? And that part really comes from emotional intelligence, from understanding human beings. And it will never be fully accurate. Like I, for example, I've been thinking about this. Um, I've been looking at like buy like a new laptop or new tech. And I, and I have this friend who's just knows everything about tech. And it's just so easy for me to just, to just send him questions. Like I, I'm always like, tell me like, what should I buy? And he's like, okay, right. Like, what do you want? He asked me the right questions. And then, and then he sends me back, like, why should I look at this or that or whatever? It's just so easy. And he's the one who's online reading all the, all the websites that, you know, list all the tech qualities of, of different laptops and all that. He is one person who might go back to that site a million times, but he's sharing that knowledge actually not just with me, but a lot of our friends. A lot of our friends rely on him for this. So, like, how do you? How do you actually? I always, every time I speak to him, I'm always like, how do I actually see that in a spreadsheet? And and it might just be like my brain that I love thinking about these weird situations. But there is another thing. Like, I I am very impulsive, so I love to go on e-commerce sites I like, create. A basket of like a huge order value and then just leave and then what <laughs> i find and obviously then you get hundreds of emails of like complete your purchase whatever and the thing is because they send me those emails that the moment i open the email i see the value of that basket of what i've put in there and i'm like oh my god like thank <laughs> god like thank god i didn't buy this um 
And I and I was wondering about that the other day, like, how do you report on that internally? Like, because I'm hoping it's not just me who does that, you know, like, surely <laughs> that, there are other people where other people have other weird habits and you you have to bring in your personal experience, your your friend's experience to be able to understand that the data that you're reporting on is is closest of best guess. And, and and when the numbers add up, the best guess works and you still follow that. I'm not saying, you know, we should throw all our dashboards out because they will never be 100% accurate, but there's still difference between like fully believing the data and just like thinking that that's like an accurate representation of everything or just knowing that this is the, the closest guess we can get to in order to achieve results. But we should always think about it critically and always try to understand like the how, where else we can get more information. Like, can we talk to actual users, all of that? Like, how can we really enrich this? Because it will never be 100% accurate. And I think that's that's really part of that um, emotional intelligence piece as well. Yeah, I think understanding customers is such a difficult thing to do, let alone, like you said, now we have GA4 where a lot more people are opting out of tracking and stuff. So we're literally getting less data than we've had before because of gdpr and data regulations and things like that but yeah how do you factor in chaotic shoppers like like yourself that just start a start a car and then me? leave them? like do you, I, have i've, never, I've never i've never heard of that I, but Very much I, just me. I, I i'm also a like i will go around and like try and break an e-commerce website like yeah go, yeah go, that's another thing go out of way and just be like i wonder what happens if i add a hundred of those things to the car or if i try and add this and this from two different categories what does it do how does it work have they ruined their shopify build i guess i'll have to find out uh <laughs> and then they look at the heat map and it's like what is this person doing <laughs> yeah i i love looking at heat maps and uh, I, I was talking with mark about this the other day like one of my favorite things is seeing the rage clicks so like when when something <laughs> isn't loading properly like maybe you're getting like a high INP or like a CLS issue or whatever and like things are loading not in the right way or in the wrong positions and whatever and you get these frustrated clicks or like why isn't this thing opening why isn't this thing opening and that can lead to people leaving your site and never coming back and just being like well it never loaded so I'm never coming back and I'm I'm so fascinated by the psychology behind that I now kind of want to just dive into your your car habits because I find that fascinating <laughs> as well but <laughs> it's, it's literally and then i feel good about myself because i feel like i saved money you know <laughs> that's, the, I, I, that's I, my I, other clue to I, that i believe the phrase on the internet for that is girl math girl where... math yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're like look I... all the money i saved by not buying the thing it's like mm, that's not how money works it's... but yeah psychologically it that's kind of how it works yeah it is yeah. though <laughs> <laughs> i sign up for that i mean oh i've seen some brilliant examples of girl math boy math like non-binary map oh yeah uh, there's been all sorts of versions of it like get on tiktok search for that it's amazing <laughs> like it's really amazing um yeah like i think my favorite boy map was is like someone said like it's when and the guy says um like not knowing how to clean the house but has 30 different products to clean their car something like that, <laughs> that was, uh, I just that just thought that was my favorite nice nice <laughs> but yeah back to back to shopping habits or back to um user habits i guess the other thing i wanted to ask you because i've seen this from seo is like um and and i think i put this once on twitter and people responded like i need it too 
like when you when you go on sites and you just look at like if you had to go through a redirect for example and then that instantly changes like ah oh, no like i'm gonna check out like another site or you know you, you scroll further down because you want to go through the organic link because you want your purchase to be attributed to seo and things like that and like by now there is quite a lot of seos out there shopping so <laughs> <laughs> that surely does like change something and then maybe a ppc people are doing the other way i have no idea but yeah. yeah it's just quite funny like how the fact that you work in digital will immediately change these things because you're more aware you're more conscious again awareness is there right you're aware yep. that what you're doing is now going to be attributed to someone's dashboard and you know how annoying it is so you're empathizing right because you know how annoying it is when your dashboard doesn't add up and you know it's important or your attribution model you don't sign up for it like as in like what you, what your company is using i mean hopefully no one just uses things like last click or first click anymore but I, when i started that was a thing and it was just like but that's not accurate like and we kept just going around like trying to find like how we can prove that there are associated conversions or whatever within the journey but if the business uses an attribution model that doesn't like attribute the money towards your channel then you were yeah it, it was very difficult to, to argue and it was very difficult to get the budget so all of these stories that you can then explain about different users help people understand that just because there are numbers here it doesn't mean that this is like a hundred percent accurate fact that you can rely on and this is what's happening that's why you have to understand the story part yeah definitely i think you're totally right about there now being enough digitally aware people, especially as we, we for a better phrase, we get older, me being a millennial and like, you know, being an SEO in my 30s, being like, I'm now aware of life before the internet and now life with the internet. And people growing up younger than me, you know, Generation Z, Generation Alpha, all these, these much younger people have grown up with the internet their entire lives, just have this inherent knowledge. And I know there's this kind of weird backlash apparently at the moment where, uh, gen alpha are aware of technology but not how it works because they didn't have the same experience of pre pre-internet technology so they're almost regressing back to like what the boomer generation were like my parents would be like well like well i don't know how this works and i don't know what this is why isn't this thing working just like my phone doesn't work it's like oh it doesn't work because you haven't updated this thing or done this thing or changed the software and the psychology of how they interact with technology is different from the opposite end of never having it to being it forced upon you to then always having it and not knowing how to deal with it when it doesn't work. And I found that so fascinating. It's almost like a perfect reflection of how much things like smartphones and how much we rely on websites and browsing and stuff for our everyday lives now is now directly reflected in generational psychological studies and stuff like that. And like you said, there's enough of us out there that are like aware of how websites work to be like, Oh well, I I should probably click that link to give them. You know, I'm sure that the SEO or the you know the data analyst on the other end of that will appreciate that one extra click. Like, <laughs> it's that one person can make a difference. We truly believe exactly, it, right? <laughs> exactly, one click at a time. Exactly. <laughs> um, should we talk about some ways we can kind of understand our emotions a bit better? I know we talked about self reflection. We've talked touched on a couple of different things personality tests and journaling and all that kind of stuff is there anything else that you think is important for us to kind of get to know ourselves better and kind of understand optimal emotional intelligence a bit better 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I think probably two other things um, that I've I've also I've also mentioned some of these in my in my talk in Brighton as well. The the, the interoception part. And if if you're if you've not heard the word interoception, it's um, it's basically. I mean, I would say it's basically mindfulness. The science doesn't say the same thing, but um, <laughs> but interoception is essentially your sort of sixth sense. So like as the same way as you have your your vision, your taste. Like interoception is just being aware of what's going on inside your body. So mm. um, your heart, like, well, obviously you can't feel everything like, um, but you can feel certain things like, for example, when you're hungry or how, like you could try to feel your heartbeat. I mean, most of us can, you know, if focus or when, when we are stressed or something, we can, we can more easily detect our heartbeat, for example. Um, so interoception really refers to that like how how well you can you can be aware of this and they also for example say that like maybe someone who's more anxious actually has a higher interoception because because they they stress out they they feel their heartbeat and that stresses them out even more so it's not necessarily that um like it's not just that like oh you should have high awareness of it or high levels of interoception that on its own that doesn't necessarily do anything but what it can do is that if you're more aware of this is kind of what we talked about with the meetings right if you're more aware of like your your heartbeat or how it changes when you're preparing for a big meeting or um what happens um again when you're when you're hungry how does that impact everything else how does that impact your mood then you can dissect it so the reason why that interoception part is important so you can so you don't sort of mistake in these things like the, the irritation that you get from being tired as sort of part of an emotional concept that you create in your head about that other person having a go at you or something or like not liking you because you're just you're just frustrated or something like that so um that's where interoception can be really helpful and i say it's the same as mindfulness because i mean i i'm in the practice of yoga for example like it's been around for five thousand years or whatever to to you know to to be able to listen to the it's called listen to the fluctuations of the mind and to me that's really the same thing like to try to tune into that internal state so that's why i'm saying it's the same thing now depending on what kind of mindfulness lesson you you try to take you might find it different um people have very different ideas about meditation as well like i've met a bunch of people who say like oh meditation just doesn't work for me and i mean that's i was one of those people um a few years ago i was like i cannot do meditation it's incredibly boring and as soon as i sit down to and someone says quiet your mind that's when all the thoughts just pop into my head and like there is no way i can quiet my mind right so and and then I just get frustrated and leave. So that's what that's what used to happen until I looked more into meditation and that actually it's not about like not having thoughts. It's about not responding to them. So letting them be there, but not actively pursuing a train of thought. Just be like, okay, that worry is there. I'm not gonna deal with that sort of thing. Like that's okay. Um, so that that is one one explanation to it, like how maybe uh, meditation can work for someone who it that where it hasn't worked in the past. But the other thing is we do a lot of things already that are kind of meditation, 
So um, I've, I've recently done a yoga teacher training where we've done a bunch of different types of meditations. And we've done things like walking meditation, mm. dancing meditation. Um, we've done uh, like singing, like all sorts of things. And what was interesting that I, before that, I just genuinely thought like meditation is like you sitting in a lotus, like quietly and humming maybe or something. <laughs> but it can be anything. If, if you find that every time you get stressed at work, you take a walk on your lunchtime to, again, quiet your mind or just, you know, get your thoughts together, like get your breath, regulate your breathing a little bit, like just shift focus. That is a type of meditation. You don't have to call it that if you don't want to, but essentially that's the same thing. So um, interoception, mindfulness, meditation, very similar concepts to understand what's going on internally, shift a little bit of focus, and that will give you a new perspective. I think that's a really important thing. I, I love the way you're relating almost like this. Cause I think a lot of people take the spiritual approach, like you said, and then you're bringing in the scientific approach and like, actually it's kind of the same thing. We're just interpreting it differently, coming back around to interpreting things differently again, like how important that is. That's something I've always think about. Again, I have a very scientific mind coming at it from a similar perspective to yourself and thinking about how, those are still beneficial things even if you're not able to like like you said uh, cross your legs perfectly and chant or whatever <laughs> to, to meditate correctly or however however people interpret it again coming back around to stereotypes and stuff right there are ways to as soon as you know yourself and how your brain works and how you're able to relax or able to process things and like you said, some people will find that from journaling some people find that from yoga or going to the gym or playing video games or whatever it is like finding a thing that allows you to kind of like rebalance everything and refocus and and all that kind of stuff. I think it's hugely important again both professionally and personally i think that's a a huge thing that a lot of us kind of take for granted and so often you get like oh yeah you should do a bit of meditation you should do a bit of mindfulness but it's not as straightforward or as stereotypical as that it can't it, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity in there as well yeah absolutely which is i i when i speak to people i love to ask them like what sort of habits they already have for example and because i do find a lot of people like again there there is still there is still stigma especially like for example i'm from hungary in hungary there is still a lot more stigma around therapy than it would be in the uk for example so it's something where people say, I, I don't need therapy. I just need a holiday or I just, I, I'm, I go for a <laughs> run or whatever. Like they, they find this other thing. And, you know, based on what I just said, people could again, interpret that and say like, yeah, right. So I don't need therapy. I don't need meditation because running is my meditation. Okay. Fair enough. But you know, are you using, let's say running or going out for a walk? Are you using that as a, distraction thing like are you going out there and shifting focus and then completely ignoring the problem altogether and just like letting it build up because then it's likely not meditation it's the distraction it's a different thing and and you could use the same habit for something that's not actually benefiting you on the long term right sometimes you do need distractions like that's okay i'm not saying you can't have distractions but but it's but it's a, a really interesting thing because there are no sort of golden rules of like oh if you like go out for a walk at lunchtime and do this because it will hundred percent help like 
No, if you go out for a walk and you put in your music and now you're focusing on something completely different and you're just like inside actually just deciding to ignore the problem completely, then like maybe that's what your body needed at the time, but long term you should probably dealing with that problem and it's and it's not like it's not gonna be the same as if you're using the running, the the walking to um to actually again reflect, to realize how you're feeling at the moment, how is that impacting you, to regulate, to to then focus on, okay, what I'm going to do next. So you have to, this is why I love the word mindfulness, because you, you have to be mindful about it, right? You have to be quite direct about like, this is why I'm doing this and, and just have that understanding. Otherwise, it is a distraction. Yeah, definitely. I love that you brought up the like potential for like cultural differences there as well, right? Like that's a I think I touched on with Sarah Presh many, many months ago, like talking about how, you know, advertising in one country can mean one thing, but you slightly change the wording or you slightly even designs of things. Be like, um, I don't think that's going to work in this country with this language or this culture and whatever it is. And again, there's a lot of nuance within languages and different cultures as well. But I guess let, let's kind of finish things off and think about how the cultural differences for emotions, right? Like, you mentioned yourself, you're being Hungarian. I am very British. I have no interesting heritage at all, unfortunately. I am decided, decidedly British. But thinking of like how, how can different, again, coming around to thinking about co-workers and, and clients and stuff like that as well, how can we better understand like how other cultures deal with their emotions as well and how that can relate to other people from other countries speaking different languages and things like that? right like this is again one of one of my favorite topics probably it's like this <laughs> i feel like we're just we're now. just ticking all your yeah, favorites we, here, right? <laughs> probably yes um but uh, the reason why i really love this one is um because as we've you know talked about emotions it's it's a concept you create you construct in your mind so your experience in how you grow up will have a huge part in that and um and the way how you can express this is through language. It can also be through art and music, but let's focus on like mostly we we inter we um, express this and and tell it to other people um, through language. And what's really interesting is that not every language has the same emotion words. And I mean, I mean, you know, if you're British, you would still have the understanding how different that can be from Americans, right? You you speak English and still like there are there are not just the different words you use but I mean I've I've worked in companies um that had both offices in the UK and in the US and um again stereotype but you know like people were like oh, the, like all the all the US people are always just so happy and energetic <laughs> and the way how they speak and then the the British people would be the ones who are like oh like we're always just you know like we, we don't get like really hyped up about things. And like, if it was like a, a training that's coming from the US, it would be like super upbeat and like, just like really like, let's energize everyone. And, and all of those things, the way how they use language is, um, has that interpretation, right? Because that's how, that's how that culture grew up. And again, that, that stereotype that doesn't obviously relate to every single individual, but that's a really important part of it. And then, um, with different languages, for example, there are different emotion words that you can have, and they can have different meanings. So, and, and that can 
shape, for example, your understanding differently of, you know, like what is happiness, what does success looks like. One thing, for example, that I recently noticed is that um, Hungarian doesn't have a word for solitude, for example. So mm. we don't have a positive word for loneliness, let's say it that way. So the only only words and all the synonyms of it that we have um, are in in a negative way, loneliness. Someone who doesn't have a partner, someone who's isolated. Um, so, I mean, again, I don't know if that's true for any Hungarian because you can still have obviously different concepts if you learned other languages and stuff. But for me, it was a really big thing when I when I sort of learned the concept of solitude in in England because it was something that like you can still feel that but if you feel something and you can't give a name to it that can be really frustrating right like because mm. it's it's a learning mechanism where where you're trying to overcome something that's unclear or uncertain so it becomes comfortable if you can name something and this is why for example learning different languages or even just like asking people like how would you say this if you're if you're being in a certain way, like, how would you express that? I think that's a really important question because you can learn a lot about the culture that way. And um, hung Hungarian, for example, shares a lot of emotion words with, with Germany because of history. So one thing people might know is the word schadenfreude, mm -hmm. uh, which is like being happy about someone else's misery. And we have the same kaderm. It's exactly the same translation in Hungarian. So I'm familiar with a lot of... Um, emotion words and concepts from Hungary and I do find actually that a lot of times where I was when I was speaking to colleagues from Germany there there were certain shared values for that reason because we would understand certain concepts certain emotions the same way so that can be really powerful that sort of growing that language and understanding that you're just not expressing things the same way and that will shape how you're thinking how you're expressing things and and that will give you that level of empathy as well that maybe that person isn't you know really direct because they don't like me maybe that's their way of communicating i mean i've again another i don't know if you've uh, you've had that with working with different cultures before i think that happens a lot like someone says like oh they are like really rude like super direct like have you ever had that yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're totally right. There are certain stereotypes around like, oh, the Americans are always going to be loud and positive, And then like the, the Germans are always going to be very direct and loud and scary. And are like, I, I guess for us Brits, it's like dour and kind of like complaining about stuff. I guess that's our stereotype, right? <laughs> but, Talking about the weather. I, yes. I do all of that. I've lived in the UK long enough to, um, yeah. Follow, follow all of that. Adopt all of the bad habits. <laughs> yeah, the, the accent, the accent isn't there, but I can, um, yeah, emotionally, I can come across very British. There you go. You've got the emotional intelligence of a Brit, which doesn't <laughs> sound like a very positive thing when you say it out loud. <laughs> it's, it is a really interesting thing though, because I now I. I I ask this question from everyone who's uh, probably I should ask this question from people as well who are who are. British, but I asked this question from people or who have English as their first language, um, people who don't have or have relationships, whether that's work, friendships, whatever, romantic relationships, 
they have it with a person who they don't share the same native language with. Mm. So, I mean, you probably have friends whose native language is not, I mean, we are talking now, but you probably, you know, like where you're talking to, to friends as well, whose native language isn't your native language, then just, it's so interesting how that um, relationship forms. And, and I'm, and I'm talking more now about the actual like bonds rather than now, now work stuff, because, um, because it's really interesting when you, when you start to understand their character, how they express themselves. Cause if someone has to sort of learn to express themselves in a different language, then again, as that granularity, cause it instantly has to, cause you now are an adult, let's say, and, and are looking for words to express something you just, you know, you've just known all your life, but now you have to look for those words. So this is why learning a language and especially learning a language, trying to express your emotions, your feelings in that language can be really beneficial adding to granularity. But art is the same, like expressing through music, drawings, all of that is, is definitely adding the granularity to that. Yeah, I've worked in a language school for like six years, so I know I've experienced it a lot where what I found really interesting was like where you'd get two different students from completely different parts of the world who have completely unrelated native languages, but their connective language is English. So they're both like speaking their second, sometimes even third or fourth language to communicate with this other person. And we were having like, you know, students would start dating and be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, at home do you only speak english to each other like are you are you like then teaching each other your native languages as well or is there there's little like moments there and like you said cultural stuff i know a lot of my uh bilingual multilingual friends have like you have slightly different personalities almost when you're speaking different languages like you know hungarian petra slightly different to english petra for example like a friend of mine who is um he was completely bilingual in german and english grew up in kind of both between his mum and his dad so he had like no accent in english and no accent in german and it completely blew german people's minds when he would swap to english and it blew my mind when he would swap back and forth because we had german colleagues as well and he would just fluently is like sometimes i dream in german sometimes i dream in english depending on how i'm feeling i'm like what how i want to study your brain what does this mean how is that possible like this sounds fascinating and he was just so like the both languages came so naturally and was so fluent in both it was just like this perfect melding of both and i found that so interesting because i have i have dipped into languages i'm i'm i am terrible i don't claim to speak anything else but i have kind of learned little bits and pieces here and there from from traveling and learning and stuff and like you said you get such a little insight into the psychology of that culture or that country or wherever you come from just from learning the most basic stuff like when i was traveling in japan basically every sentence starts with excuse me it's if you you walk you walk into a shop you excuse yourself walking into the shop and the shopkeeper will also excuse themselves as you walk into the shop as well whereas almost like in england we say sorry about everything it's always like the reflection of that almost of like oh somebody bumps into me in public i still apologize to them and i remember like um, that blows americans minds like why are you apologizing they bumped into you you shouldn't be apologizing like that's crazy but that builds that cultural psychology right that that builds that whole dynamic and relationship just from even like you said not even languages but the difference between 
British English, US English, Australian English, Irish people speaking English, non-native speakers speaking English in different ways. And like you're saying, bringing words or concepts that you have in your native language to another language and, and reinterpreting that. Again, like I know Japanese has a lot of words where in English we do not have a concept for that. There is no like... I think there's one that is like the light coming through the trees in autumn or something like that. There's like, there is a word in Japanese for that. The fact that I had to kind of stumble through that sentence in English and be like, I think it's light and trees and and stuff, you know, like it took me a few seconds to explain that. Well, there is just a word that, oh yeah, I totally get that concept. And that completely like reframes your way of thinking about it right the fact that i had to kind of stumble through that clumsily stumble through that sentence in my native language and then they have an entire word that's just like yep that sums up that vibe and that moment and that emotion so so succinctly i find that so fascinating that's amazing as well i mean that's beautiful i don't know i don't know that word but i want to look it up because the thing is if you experience something like that and you can give it a name then it's it's like how you create memories of that. Then you create a category. Then you can every time you see that light, you have that concept. So now you can connect all of those moments, and then you can start to develop some sort of appreciation for it that is maybe bigger than you know if you if you can't name it, if you can't name it, it can get lost in all the information that you have. So that's why those those concepts are so important. And and um, again, it's a uh, it's it's in um, Lisa Feldman Barrett's book. So she's, uh, she's, she's this neuroscientist I mentioned earlier, and she has this book, How Emotions Are Made. And she has a lot of, lot of stuff about emotions in general. And um, she also suggests this uh, it learning, learning language, like learning emotional concepts. But another thing that um, I've only heard from her so far is uh, to even make up your own words for things. So you're, you're feeling something and you can't describe it. Try to make up a word for it because if you feel it often, then at least your brain can categorize it and can associate those, you know, the, the times when when you feel that way. Like um, she mentions that Japanese has a word for like feeling bad after getting a haircut or something. <laughs> and like, the, the, like these fascinate me because it's like I definitely had that moment, but like I don't really remember them that well but like if i have a word for it like if you have a word for someone you can recall those memories like you remember them more as well because more emotional memories that we can store we remember them better so like having these concepts these names are really powerful and it's completely okay to make these up i mean i know a lot of people do that within relationships for example they they make up their own language, right? Because they can communicate better. That's how they understand each other better. So it's so important. So um yeah, I, I when I read that from her, I I thought that was that was very, very interesting. And I definitely encourage people to make up names for certain feelings they, <laughs> they can't find a name for. Because probably there's a language out there that that has it, but you know, language also evolves all the time. Like we have new words and new concepts coming all the time as well. So free to make up your own <laughs> i think that's a really cool idea you're totally right like language evolves so much especially as we're talking about so much digital stuff and the internet and how much that has shaped things and i know i am feeling very old as a 33 year old being like oh i don't get what these kids are talking about these days they're using all these new words it's like that's how language works that's how 
you know, people two generations ago were feeling about me when we were saying stuff when we were kids as well. Like, language naturally evolves. And also, you mentioned schadenfreude earlier, like, that is now a word that English people use and English-speaking people use that we have just wholeheartedly borrowed from German because we don't have a word for that feeling and to express that way. Um, listeners, if you're, if you're freaking out about those two Japanese words, age otori is the feeling after a bad haircut. So you go, and, go and look that up. Um, and komorebi is the... Uh, what's the exact wording here? Hold on, bear with me. The scattered light that filters through when sunlight shines through trees. So komorebi and agi otori are the two Japanese words there. So you've learned a little bit of Japanese along the way as well, listeners. <laughs> I love that. I'm definitely komorebi. That that was the one for the light, right? Yeah, that's sunshine through trees. Yeah, through the leaves, between leaves and trees, basically. Yeah, yeah. Great. Awesome. <laughs> well, Petra, I won't take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for joining me. I really, really love talking to you. It's nice to... I know we've kind of had little chats here and there uh, over the months, but it's nice to actually finally sit down with you and really delve deep into some of your favorite topics it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much pleasure as well how can people follow you and by the way before you say anything the links for everything of course will be in the show description so go and click them go and follow petra in all the different places um i I, i'm on twitter LinkedIn. i have my website as well um i'm hoping to be better with posting about these topics in the future soon so (laughs) If you follow me, then then um, hopefully I will start sharing more news around emotional intelligence. Awesome. Awesome. Go and follow Petra, everybody. She is one of my favorite people to follow on LinkedIn and Twitter. So go and check them out. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again, Petra. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we will stay in touch and uh, yeah, speak soon. Thank you so much for having me. And that, dear listeners, concludes season two of the Search with Canada podcast. That's right. I've finished an entire season of this podcast, 102 episodes. I'm catching up on Mark. I believe it was 131 for the first season. So I've got about 30 episodes left. So by the time it comes to sort of halfway through 2024, I will have hosted more episodes than Mark. And that is my goal with this podcast, obviously, is to uh, take it over and uh, have hosted the most amount of episodes. But no, seriously, I've got some really, really cool guests coming up. Like I said, we're now doing video stuff, so I will keep mentioning the YouTube if you haven't already guessed. Go and check us out on YouTube. I'm doing a lot of video editing and putting a lot of effort into making the, uh, the episodes video available and all that kind of stuff. So please do go and check that out if you are interested. I know a lot of people like to watch podcasts as well as listening to them. And if you have YouTube Premium and stuff like that, you can also listen to it in the background and treat it like audio. I know that's what I do a lot because I consume a lot of YouTube content and podcasts and things through YouTube. So there's quite a few different ways you can be doing it and listening to the show, watching the show, all that kind of stuff. All the links for that kind of thing will, of course, be in the show notes, as I said at the start of the show. And I guess... Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for supporting us throughout Season 2. Thank you so much to Sistrix, who has sponsored us for the entirety of Season 2 as well. Thank you so much to all the amazing guests that have joined us throughout this season. Thank you to Mark for having me on and letting me do this and joining me every month for our news recaps and things like that. Those recap episodes, so Mark and I will be reuniting every single month to give you quick updates and recaps and stuff like that. And as I said at the start of the show, 
please let us know what you want to hear and see from Search with Candidate in 2024. Do you want me to get more and more diverse guests? Do you want me to get the big names in SEO? Do you want me to have more conversations with Mark and we have more of our kind of catch-ups about what's been happening in search marketing and all that kind of stuff as well? So if you're listening to this in January, we've also just launched our first ever newsletter as well. So you can go to coreupdates.com. Yes, our, our newsletter is called Core Updates. And go and check it out there as well. There you'll get Mark's unsolicited SEO tips. You'll get the latest episode of the podcast delivered to your inbox as well. So you can't miss it that way as well. And of course, you will get all the latest news and updates and key things that are happening in SEO and search marketing as well. So like I said, coreupdates.com is the place to go for that. If you want to keep up with the show, search.withcanda.co.uk is the place to go. There's an archive of all the previous 233 episodes of the show if you want to go and check them out. We've had some fantastic guests over the years, both when Mark hosted and since I've been hosting as well. And like I said, just a huge thank you. If this is your first episode, first of all, thank you so much. If you're listening to this on New Year's Day, very cool of you. Thank you so much for for discovering us and, and giving us a chance. Like I said, it has been a huge honour and a really exciting, interesting journey over the last couple of years hosting this show, and we're carrying on. We're doing bigger and better and going older for 2024. We're going full video, we're going more and more content around the episodes and things like that, including the newsletter that I just talked about. So stay tuned for all of that stuff. 2024, I think, is going to be a big year for us, and uh, if hopefully you'll join us along for the rest of the ride throughout the year as well thank you for listening thank you so much for your support thank you for sharing us on social media and all that kind of stuff and i will see you next week literally you will see me hopefully if you're checking us out on youtube next week for the kickoff of season three until then have a lovely start to your new year and have a lovely week <laughs>